Please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray together. O Father in heaven, We tremble over your word, especially a word like this. You have mercy on whom you will, and you harden whom you will. And I am constrained to pray, O God, in this room and in Roseville, stay your hardening hand. Have mercy, O God, this morning. Let this be a window planned from the foundation of the world of mercy on some who have hardened themselves long and are on the brink of being hardened beyond measure and recovery. Oh God, have mercy, I pray, upon us to hear this word, to be made low and humble and fragile and desperate and saved and bold in Christ by this word. So now, Lord, help me, please, to be faithful to what it says and to apply it with a spiritual urgency to those in Roseville and to those here In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So we pick up where we left off three weeks ago now and try to sum up the issue that Paul has raised in verses 14 to 18, and in particular, uh, last time, verses 14, 15, and 16. And the issue is... The justice of God or the righteousness of God. You see it in verse 14. Is there then unrighteousness with God? Now that was raised, that issue was raised by the teaching in verses 11 to 13 that God elects unconditionally who will be his. He elects unconditionally those who will... Believe and undeservingly be saved, and those who will rebel and deservingly perish. And in his day and our day, he knew what the response to that would be. Namely, by human thinking, people will accuse God of unrighteousness. 
and injustice. And therefore, he raises the question for us. The reason I say it has to do with being saved and perishing is the issue that was raised in verse 3. Paul there is grieving over the fact that many of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are accursed and cut off from Christ. That's the issue in this chapter. And the issue is, well, if so many Jews, individual Jews within Israel, can be accursed and cut off from Christ, how can the covenant God made with Israel be of any use? How can God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness, God's trustworthiness be there for us Christians if it isn't any longer there for the Jews? If Jews are perishing, cut off from Christ and accursed, as verse 3 says then what's become of God's word? And so Paul says in verse 6, the word of God has not fallen. And then he gives this explanation. For not all those who belong to Israel are Israel. Meaning, the covenant of salvation isn't with ethnicity, It's with those who are his within an ethnic group and all ethnic groups, as he goes on to say. So the word of God stands because it isn't bound to save all Israelites or no Gentiles. It is bound to save whom? And he begins to unpack Redemptive history, not Ishmael, but Isaac, not Esau, but Jacob. He makes it real explicit in verses 11 to 13, this doctrine of unconditional election. He says, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. That's where we get unconditionality. They had done nothing good Or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I chose Jacob, I rejected Esau, and I did it before they were born. Or had done anything good or evil. And so the human mind rises up, as Paul knows, and begins to accuse God. Puts him in the dock, calls him to account, and accuses him of unrighteousness. And Paul says in verse 14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? No unrighteousness with God is there. And his answer is, may it never be. No, there is not. Why not? And he begins his argument. And this is where we were three weeks ago. Let me try to sum it up. In verse 15, Paul quotes Exodus 33:19. For... He says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, that's given by Paul as an argument for no injustice. You see the word for at the beginning of verse 15? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be for. This is his argument. For God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a strange argument. It doesn't sound like an argument. It sounds like a restatement of the problem. The problem is, you elect unconditionally. There's no injustice with that, because God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. That doesn't sound like an argument. That sounds like a restatement of the problem. How does it become an argument? Because in Paul's mind, it's an argument. And that's what we spent a half an hour on three weeks ago. And I said there were two keys to unlocking this argument. And we talked one last time. We'll talk the second one today. Let me review the first one. The first key is... That in the Old Testament context of Exodus 33:19, those words, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, are given as an expression of and a manifestation of God's name, his glory, and what it means to be God. Now, we spent a long time arguing for that. I won't repeat it, but I'll just restate it. The first key to unlock how this argument works is this. When that statement was made by God to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, it was a statement of, a manifestation of who he is. Show me your glory. And God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. It was an expression of his glory, an expression of his name. This is who I am. I am free. I am not constrained ultimately by any powers or wills or actions outside of me. That's what it means to be God, Yahweh. That's my glory. That's my name. That's key number one, which Paul saw in Exodus 33. Now, I argued that only very briefly and said that I would come back today and give you a a New Testament ground for it. So let's go to Romans 3. I want to keep my promise. Romans 3, 23 to 25. Here's my question. Is that the essence of the righteousness of God? Is that the essence of the righteousness of God? That God unswervingly is committed to his name. That's key number two, which I only mentioned last time. Let me state them again. Key number one is, the name of God is essentially, I am free. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. I am not constrained by powers outside of me, ultimately. I design all things. That's key number one. Key number two is, 
The righteousness of God, the justice of God, in Paul's mind, is his unwavering commitment to uphold that glory and that name. Now, I haven't argued for that. And that's what I want to do now from Romans 3, 23 to 25. In Romans 3, 23, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's very important to notice what he relates sin to here. Sin is a lacking of the glory of God. It's an offense to the glory of God. It's a derision to the glory of God. It's a belittling of the glory of God. It is choosing something beside the glory of God as more desirable and acting in accordance with that desirability rather than his desirability. And so it's a black ball of his worth and an offense and a derision and a belittling of his infinite value and beauty every time we sin. Every person in this room tramples the glory of God every day. Now that's the problem that has to be solved in the universe. And he solves it. And Paul tells us how. Let's read now 24 and 25. Now keep in mind what we're looking for here. We are looking for the meaning of the righteousness of God. Verse 24, and they are justified by his grace. We all who trample the glory of God by our preferring television to Bible reading, we trample his glory every day. And yet ungodly people like us can be reckoned righteous, stand and wonder. How can this be? We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Where did he come from? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And here comes the key phrase. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over sins. That's the most important sentence in the Bible, in my judgment. God sent Jesus to die. You see that in the phrase, by his blood. And by dying, righteousness of God is vindicated. The anger of God is propitiated. Sinners who belittle God's glory are justified by faith alone. Now here's the question. Why did God have to vindicate his righteousness in this Terrible way. And he tells us why in the middle of verse 25. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Do you see what's at stake? Do you see what God is 
looking down upon the trampling of his glory, which we're getting now from verse 23. He's looking down at his glory being trampled every day. And he saves sinners. He justifies the ungodly. He welcomes them into his holy presence. He gives them everlasting and ever-increasing joy. And every just bone in our body cries out, that's wrong. Because you're acting as though your glory is worthless. You save me, you're acting as though your glory is worthless. And if your glory is worthless and you act that way, you're unrighteous. Because the meaning of righteousness is always esteeming what is infinitely worthy of esteem, namely his glory. The righteousness of God is always doing the deepest right thing. And the deepest right thing is to uphold what is most infinitely worthy of upholding. And that is the glory of God. If God acts as though his glory is worth trampling, he is unrighteous. And that's why there had to be a vindication of the righteousness of God in the saving of ungodly people like me. Therefore, I conclude the meaning, the most essential meaning. I don't mean to exhaust the meaning of it. Don't press me too far. I would say the deepest, most essential heart meaning of divine righteousness is his unwavering commitment always to act in accord with the infinite value of his glory. Always to uphold his glory, to display his glory. That's what it means for him to be righteous, to uphold his glory, uphold his name, display his worth. Now we have two keys to unlock the argument of verse 15. That's what we're after. How in the world is verse 15 an argument that there is no unrighteousness with God in unconditional electing who he will? Key number one. The name of God, the glory of God, the being of God most essentially consists in his freedom. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I am not constrained by powers outside of me ultimately. I originate those choices. That's key number one. His name consists in... His freedom. Key number two, his righteousness consists in upholding that name. Therefore, when God acts in freedom to elect, who will believe and undeservingly be saved? And who will rebel and deservingly perish? He is acting in righteousness. Then, wanting to add more support to his argument, he not only restates the doctrine in verse 16, so then, you see the so, meaning he's rising back up to the level of inference from this ground, so then, 
It does not depend on man who wills or who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's a restatement. And now he goes back down to the level of argument again in verse 17 and quotes another Old Testament text, this time from Exodus 9, 16. And then he comes back up to the level of inference in verse 18 and restates the point of verse 16 and verse 13. Only this time he brings in the negative half. He has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. You see how similar that is to verse 15. He has mercy on whom he has mercy only now. He brings in the word harden. Where did he get that? He got it from Pharaoh. But it's very interesting, isn't it? In fact, it's startling to me. You read the story of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There must be a dozen verses where it says God hardened his heart or he hardened his own heart or his heart was hardened. Plenty of verses to quote if you want to draw out the inference of hardening. Quote one of the verses. And he doesn't. Why does he quote 9.16? Exodus 9.16. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is verse 17, Romans 9.17, quoting Exodus 9.16. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. To demonstrate my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed throughout all the earth, the whole earth. Hmm. There's no mention of hardening in, in that verse. And yet that's the inference he draws because he says in the next verse, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And he's clearly getting the idea of hardening from the story of Pharaoh, which is all about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That's next week's sermon. When I got to this point in the message thinking, hmm, I think I'll do 17 and 18 this week. I got here and I said, no way. Can't pack this much in. So here's what we're going to do next week. We're going to go back and we're going to study the story of the Exodus. And all those statements about God's hardening Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's hardening himself, and Pharaoh's being hardening. And we're going to try to answer the question, why this verse, Paul? Why 916 and not one of those others about hardening? Why this verse? And I'll give you a heads up, especially the pastors aren't going to be here, so you can think about it. I'll give you a heads up. It has to do, number one, with purposiveness, which is in this verse purposiveness. God doesn't act because he's caused to act. He acts to purpose something. Think about that. And secondly, it's a world evangelization issue. He means to get Rahab saved. That's in this verse. But what are we going to do with the few minutes we have left here? Here's what I want to do. I want to step back from what we've seen so far. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I harden whom I harden. 
before they were born or had done anything good or evil, I chose in this room before you were born or had done anything good or evil, God chose who would believe and undeservingly be saved and who would rebel and deservingly perish. Now, I want to step back with that truth and gather in the truth of chapters 1 to 8 and gather in the truth of chapter 10 and make some big, overarching, utterly important applications to your heart right now. Unconditional election does not mean that final salvation is unconditional. Say that again. Unconditional election does not mean that whether you today will be saved or damned is unconditional. It is by faith that we are justified. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be finally saved. And if you don't, you won't. Final salvation is not unconditional. It's conditioned upon Faith. And because of hard and impenitent hearts, we receive wrath and perish. Romans 2, 5. Because of your hard and repentant and impenitent heart, you are storing wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. Because, because, because... Your final escape from wrath or entrance into wrath hangs on conditions that you will meet or not meet now. The doctrine of unconditional election contradicts none of that. Unconditional election, which Paul has taught now in verses 11 to 13, teaches God simply decides from eternity who will be in those two groups. Who will believe and undeservingly live forever and who will rebel and deservingly perish. God decides that before it happens. Now, there are two huge implications of this this morning. Number one, O Bethlehem and all guests, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus this morning. Believe in Him as Lord. Believe in Him as Savior. Believe in Him as the treasure of your life. Believe in Him and you will live. I say it on the authority of Scripture. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, please, don't be wiser than the word of God. Do not say, if he chooses me, I don't need to choose him. I plead with you, don't be wiser than the word of God. Don't say, why should I take hold of Christ? He's taken hold of me. Why not say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.12, I press on to make it my own and I lay hold on him because he has laid hold on me. Why not be biblical? Why rise up in your human reason and be wiser than scripture and mock the wisdom of God by saying, well, if he chooses me before I did anything good or evil, there's no point in me choosing him. That's absurd and unbiblical and tragic. Humble yourself under the word of God. He calls you to believe and promises if you will believe, you will be saved. Second implication. Beware when you have believed that you boast as though you originated this belief out of nothing. As though you were sovereign, as though you were a kind of originating little God who could make that happen out of a dead heart, out of a rebellious will, out of a spiritual corruption. Beware when you have believed that you boast as though your believing were from yourself. Rather, do what Paul did in Romans 6.17. Apply it to yourself like this. Paul said, you can apply it. I thank God that from the heart you have become obedient to the teachings of Christ. So say that. I thank God that I have become obedient to the teachings of Christ. I thank God that I woke up believing this morning. I thank God that I trusted Him yesterday afternoon. I thank God that He brought me to Himself. Don't boast that you did this. He will get half His glory at best if you do. And He means to get it all. Be on your face in humility and, and recognize this as we come to the Lord's table now. God has saved us in a way, a twofold way that excludes all boasting. The principle of faith excludes boasting and the principle of election excludes boasting. And they exclude boasting in different ways, one going deeper than the other. Let me just give you two texts. Faith excludes boasting. Romans 3.27 What then becomes of our boasting? Paul asks. It is excluded. On what principle? The principle of works? No. But on the principle of faith. How so? 
Because faith is the one unique, strange, indescribable, inscrutable act of the soul which looks totally away from itself and all of its distinctives and receives grace. No other act can do this. Faith alone receives and forgets itself, forgets its own vaunted self-origination and its own fruits. Faith opens itself and is swept out of itself to the grace and the glory and the beauty of God and irresistibly rests in Him and delights in Him. And it cannot, therefore, boast. It's forgotten itself. It will not look in the mirror, let alone at its own distinctives. And, secondly, the doctrine of unconditional election eliminates boasting. I'm not drawing this as an inference that I thought up. I'm just going to quote an inference that Paul knew God thought up. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. Consider your calling. Now, many of you were... Wise in worldly standards, not many of you were powerful in worldly standards, not many of you were uh, high-born. But God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he chose the low and despised, even things that are not, to put to naught things that are. That's a very radical statement. To nullify Everything. And then comes the clause. So that no human being would boast before the Lord. Faith is the design of God to eliminate boasting. Election is the design of God to eliminate boasting. So here we come, Lord Jesus, to your table. We're going to come to this table and we're going to come saying... I believe you, Christ, and I thank you that I believe you, and therefore I renounce all boasting, all self-reliance, all self-exaltation. Let's pray. Lord, would you please come? Would you come? And would you grant us to understand the cross? And its central role as the fruit of election and as the origin of faith. Oh God, grant, I pray, that we would see you, worship you, savor you, treasure you, believe you, praise you, obey you, suffer for you, die for you, and live with you forever. Amen.